Hello, and welcome to another episode of Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast. I'm Gib Gerard, alongside none other than John Tesh. John, how you doing? Uh, I'm just thinking about the years that matter most. Okay. You know... <laughs> so I'm excited about this one. Oh, yeah, our guest this week is Paul Tuff. He's he's been the author of a whole bunch of books, uh, a bunch of books that have set education philosophy, and uh, this one is all about college, how the importance of the college years, and uh, and and what sort of happened to our education system when it comes to to higher education. So we're going to talk about, and we actually we, we talk about this current scandal with uh, Felicity Huffman and the group, uh-huh. uh, and and what sort of the culture that has led to that. And really, do we need college anymore? And and I mean, spoiler alert: the answer is yes. But the way that we approach it may be different than than we think than we currently do. It. Do you guys talk about trade school? We do talk about trade school, and uh, but you know, essentially uh, the the same the same community college system that supports people going to four year schools is the same system that supports trade schools. And a lot of people we talk about how oh, everybody says, "Oh, you don't need to go to college; you can be a welder." Well, you got to get a two year certificate right. from a trade school, which is usually a community college, mm-hmm. in order to in order to become a welder. So we need to continue to fund those those schools if we're going to have welders out there. That's that's one of the big takeaways towards the end of the end of the conversation. I think one of the things that's shutting down a lot of people, uh, turning them off from from you know conventional college experiences, is is the uh, is is the loans. You know? Yeah, well, um, it's gotten more expensive relative to inflation. Um, it's gotten and 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 the question is where is the actual value and what what jobs do we actually need that would that would. Uh, that would be supported by a college education. So that's that's really what we talk about. And and nobody's in the research like Paul. And, and so he's got a very good, he's got years of experience writing lots of books on education. And this is his newest one, which is all about, about awesome. college now. I can't wait. Uh, so before we get to uh, Gib and Paul, there is a way, let's talk about purpose and mission and a, a bunch of stuff that I've been yep. writing about for uh, trying to write yeah, about Yeah, you've been years. writing your book. Yeah, it's almost done. Uh, so if you want to find meaning in life, if you want to feel a sense of belonging, you want to conquer personal challenges that you didn't think uh, possible, then experts say you should, you should try something extreme. And apparently a lot of people... They're not running uh, 5Ks and 10Ks and half marathons. Those, are, those have dropped in recent years. And so uh, the marathon and marathon plus, so talking about 50-plus uh, mile ultra marathons. Yeah. And then what, uh, you know, what Scotty and a bunch of his friends do, the Tough Mudder obstacle right. courses, which, which are not, at, I, I mean, I'm just guessing because you and I both run a marathon, are not as tough as marathons, but they're still extreme. Um, Ironman events, yeah. definitely extreme. Yeah. Um, and the participation is uh, primarily millennials and women. So this comes from the journal Psychology Research and Behavior Management. The motivating factors, as I said, are you know finding a meaning in life. And 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 you know I think you probably I'm I'm not sure did you have the same reaction I had for my first marathon. My first marathon was in '77 in New York City, mm-hmm. and then and then yours was uh, 2000. Was it 2000? 2000 in New York City. Yeah. First, yeah. yeah. Well, it was a it was it was a spiritual no uh, question. You know, going over that, no that finish line, I, they, they, it will never be able to take it from me. That, that, and that's the thing, right? Like, there's so many accomplishments now, and and you know, we we make light of uh, on the air and stuff about the the generation of people who got participation trophies. And and here's the deal. Here's a participation trophy that's actually worth something. Yes, it's it, just to finish a marathon is an accomplishment, and and it's something that nobody can take away from you. And I and I totally agree. I think a 5K and a 10K, those are athletic uh, endeavors. You know, you're, you're using the kind of shape that you're in is going to determine what kind of a time you have doing a 5 or a 10K. And to a certain extent, that's true of a marathon. But at a certain point in a marathon, and I think it happens somewhere between mile 16 and 18, 
it changes from an athletic event yep. to a purely spiritual one where you're <laughs> suffering. It is, but but it's your it's your own will fighting against your body. Like your ability to put one foot in front of the other as you go for the miles is is it's 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 everything and it's not even about how what kind of shape your heart's in it's not about what kind of shape your legs are in it is just that ability to put one foot in front of the other and once you know you can do that you know something about yourself that nobody can ever take away yeah. from you and that's yeah. the joy of the marathon um the ultra marathon thing i just don't understand how you, how people can do that because i've never finished a marathon and thought, you know, it sounds good right now. Yeah. <laughs> Running a few more miles. Yeah, I've been watching some videos from David Goggins, you know, yeah. the Navy SEAL guy, and and, uh, uh, and he's he's like into the fifty and hundred yeah. mile races. Yeah. yeah, no, no, thank you. Mm. I mean, look, more. I, I I actually get it. Once you've experienced the high of a marathon, I can just imagine that you're you are pushing that high even farther with these fifty and hundred mile races, and to a lesser extent, the, the tough mutters, which are more about. The obstacles themselves, yeah. and less about they're, the actual yeah, they're, running. They're, they're, they're not easy. But the uh, it's it's I just cannot I just cannot imagine keep continuing to run after I finish twenty six point two. Once I see that twenty six point two go by, I'll be like, well, you know, I did a marathon today. I'm going to call it quits. I'm going to step aside. What what is that? It's uh, uh it's um, lavender, relaxing lavender. I'm just spraying that on you. So that I that I rely, you feel like I'm no, tense today? No, it's just I got. I got oh, it. that is that does smell nice. I, it was one of those things. For those of you that have purchased the 4D experience, <laughs> spray your lavender spritz now. Yeah, it's. Uh, I got it. You know, it was. I was ordering something on Amazon. And it said you might also like the lavender spray. Uh, I gotta spray. know what so, you were buying. So listen, I have to tell you. You know, this whole thing about finding your purpose and mission mm-hmm. by by mm-hmm. you know entering events like this. Yes. I have really been exploring. I mean, listen, I'm 67 years old. It's about time. I've been exploring um, discipline. So you know how I love to listen to those. Uh, I love to listen to everything on uh, all good stuff on on YouTube. And there's these compilations put up put, right. put together. Told you about by Evan Carmichael and the Mulligan Brothers mm-hmm. and all these guys. And so there's there's uh, there's several of them on discipline. And one of them is The Rock, your favorite. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also you know uh, Mark Wahlberg uh, right. is in there. He's mixed in there. So is Jordan Peterson, and and also a, you know a big one in there is uh, Will Smith. Yeah. Very much into discipline. He's the guy who says that I'll, I'm not as I'm not as smart. I'm not as good as you, but I'll outwork you on right, the right. on the treadmill. But the the thing with the thing with discipline is it, it it's it's as simple as most of these guys say as getting up and getting in the gym. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, and and it, it's it has changed. And you know that I've been better. Like in the last in the last two months, I I get that. Well, I don't have three kids mm-hmm. like you do, but there's something about that win. That is, I mean, it's subconscious, it's conscious, it's 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 pseudo all the consciousnesses. It it, um, it wakes you up, it sets you yeah, up for the day. Yeah, yeah, but but it it also sends the message to your brain that 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 I'm I'm a, I'm a disciplined person, right? You know, and and I think that when you, I know, I shouldn't say I think, when you set your sights on, you say I'm going to run a marathon, right? Mm-hmm. That's what I'm going to do. Me and Fluffy and Danny and Bobby and our little group. We're gonna run it. Wow, it's a weird group. I know it rabbits? sounds like a morning morning uh, 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 radio team or, or rabbits. <laughs> but um, you know, most people who run their first marathon, it's like twelve minutes, yeah, right, something like that. And so twelve minute miles, everybody. Right, sorry, they're, they're yeah, not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like a day of running. <laughs> um, but but that thing where you you set your goal and then you have to meet every day and run, mm-hmm. whether it's a ten mile or yeah. a five mile or something like that. What a huge accomplishment! You right, know, and you have that medal. And then you, yeah. yeah, and and like everybody's, like, oh, you just get a medal for participating. It's like, you no. know what? Do it, no. do it. Get yeah. your medal if yeah. you think it's if if you think it's meaningless. Because I have yeah. a whole pile of medals that I got for participating, and I am proud of every single one of them. And you're absolutely right. There is a 
there is a sense of accomplishment. There's a thing that you learn about yourself in the doing that that nobody can take away. And that is, and I absolutely understand why that's on the rise because I think also so many of our experiences right now are are ethereal. They're online. They're they're faked. You know, people are like, you know, people are having plastic surgery and pretending that it's their new contouring makeup that they're selling or um, you know, people are people are showing their experiences online that are not really real. They're just ver- they're the versions that they're trying to promote. And uh, there's there's nothing more real than moving one foot in front of the other for over 20 miles. There's just there's nothing more real than that. You you will feel the realness of yeah, that. Yeah, oh yeah. That was a heck of an example there. Contouring makeup, I'm sorry. I I have somebody specific in mind, but I'm afraid of <laughs> of the lawyers of that family to say any more than that. All right, so here it said, can a college education provide real opportunity anymore to North Americans trying to improve their, you know, their lives? Does college still still work, uh, or is it just for the privileged? Uh, yeah. Announce our guy here. You- so this is our interview with Paul Tuff, but real fast, before we get to the interview, two things. One, a quick word from our sponsors at Weeder Artery Health. Um, and, and you're going to hear John talk about that before we do that, you know, we don't have a lot of sponsors on this show. And one of the great ways that you can support the show is to click one of the things is to click all the links in the bio, uh, or to click all the links in the, in the show notes of where to buy the books and stuff that, that helps us out. But the other thing, uh, check out Tesh.com. We just opened a new store oh, yeah. on Tesh.com where you can buy all John's CDs, uh, a whole bunch of other stuff, this book when it comes out. Uh, and I'm, I'm toying with, so go ahead and reach out to me on social media. I'm toying with some ideas for some uh, intelligence for your life uh, podcast T-shirts. Oh, maybe, what a great maybe idea! Maybe just a big, maybe H E L. Oh, hello! Just right. kind of written out right, like right, that. Right. I think that could be and fun. maybe a tip on the back. Yes. Yeah. We, so yeah. So we'll uh, we're gonna so we could steal those from your hosts from your guests. Excuse yes, me. we yeah. could steal yeah. the tips from the guests. That's yeah. part of. The I think part Jordan of, Peterson would sue us. I, yeah, he might, but he has. He's oh, you're gonna have, we're, gonna, we're gonna call him up, get him on the show. We're gonna try. Yeah, that's good. I love it. Okay. But so so uh, so. Go ahead, and I'll put a link to uh, the Tesh.com store in the show notes, but also, real fast, Weeder Artery Health, and then Paul Tuff. Hey, it's John Tesh here to tell you about Weeder Artery Health. If you're concerned about maintaining your heart health, I urge you to check out Weeder Artery Health. It's crucial to maintain healthy and flexible arteries, and that's where Weeder Artery Health comes in. It has clinically researched key ingredients like vitamin K2, which is hard to get enough of from food alone. Weeder Artery Health uses MenaQ7 as the source of vitamin K2. It's been clinically shown to help transport calcium to your bones. Weeder Artery Health also includes an ingredient called Aronia Berry, which improves circulation and helps maintain blood pressure by keeping arteries flexible. Proper blood flow is your lifeline, and I want you to live a long and healthy life. So grab a box of Weeder Artery Health. I get mine at Costco for the best value, and you can too. Or you can visit Weeder.com. Go to Costco.com or Weeder.com for Weeder Artery Health. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Paul Tuff, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, you know, you, you've written like uh, four books, which is a third of a dozen. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> so your time. Thanks for giving us your time. Thank you. Great to be here. Okay, so I want to dive right into this. Your newest book is The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes or Breaks Us. And there's a lot of, this is a timely time, <laughs> timely time, hey yo. This is a great yeah. time to have this conversation because I think a lot of people are rethinking higher education in general. So I guess the first question is, uh, what, does higher education in, in North America in particular still, still really matter? It does. I mean, so I feel like there is, 
this uh, skepticism with higher education that is alive in the land right now. Um, yes. And I share a lot of it. So I, I dropped out of college twice um, and never went back and got my BA. So I have it in my bones to be skeptical about higher education. But at the same time, in doing the, the reporting for my book, what I found is that when you look at the economic data, um, a college degree matters a whole lot right now in terms mm. of who is able to succeed uh, in today's economy. There are very few opportunities for kids, especially you know low-income, uh, middle-class kids who come out of high school and don't go on to get another credential. They're just, you know, when a generation or two ago, there were lots of opportunities for kids like that. Right, right. Now there are not. So uh, absolutely, college matters, higher education matters. Um, but the problem that I see when I look at, at uh, the higher education landscape is that there's this real stratification so that rich kids, kids who grow up with a lot of money, um, are much more likely to be going to college than kids without a lot of money. And they're right. much more likely to be going to the most selective institutions. Those right. institutions now almost entirely educate rich kids and, and nobody else. Um, and low-income students just have much uh, many fewer options. And the, the institutions that are set up um, to you know, offer a, a more low-cost uh, higher education, they're the ones that we're not funding well enough that aren't working well enough. Mm. And so, I mean, you know, the, the, I live in California, and, and mm-hmm. the University of California system used to be the jewel of, of the state and also of higher education systems. It was very affordable. It was um, an excellent education. And a lot of think a lot of great thinkers came out of that process. And you and you could go if you were a California native, you could go for very uh, inexpensively and get a great college education. Yes, and obviously, like that changes every year. So our spending on, um, you know, the, the Board of Regents keeps raising the tuition. So our spending per person on uh, on what it costs to go to college keeps going up. Uh, but does the value of the degree necessarily correspond with that increase in price? Uh, no, not necessarily. Um, I mean, I would still say that it, that a, a, an education from a UC school is is a valuable thing. Mm-hmm. But I do think that that something has changed in terms of how we think about public higher education. And I think the use, you know, what what is going on in California is a perfect example, which is that. Right. In, in the not too distant past, um, we thought about the like the, that whole system, the, the uh, Cal State system, UC plus community colleges. It mm-hmm. was this this sort of interwoven system yes. where students with lots of different interests and backgrounds and abilities um, could find a good public education that would take them to uh, the next level. And whether that was, you know, an associate's degree from a community college that would let them get a good uh, skilled labor job or whether it was, you know, a Ph.D. in astrophysics from Berkeley or UCLA, the idea was that it was this public responsibility to help kids get there. Uh, and that is what I think has changed, and right. not just in California, but nationally. Uh, in fact, it's probably happened worse in other places than it has in California, that we have stopped funding public education, public higher education the way we used to. And much more of the of the risk and the pressure and the cost is now uh, on the on the shoulders of the young people themselves, the students right. who are going through the system. And so that leads to, you know, once, it be, once higher education becomes a consumer good and not a public good, it's not a surprise that you know people with money are able to afford more of it. But right. there was this idea not that long in the past, and especially in California, that no, this was actually you know it's like a public K twelve education. This is this is something that is good for the state when we have lots of kids having lots of opportunities. And as a result, you know the aerospace industry and the tech industry boomed in in California because of that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean it, there's right, a direct correlation with that. Exactly, and and I feel like there was the, the this idea. I mean, it's it's not 
so foreign, uh, but it is, it's amazing how we have kind of forgotten this, right? And I, I feel like there's this way that we now, as parents, as students, uh, as alumni even, we think of higher education as this competitive marketplace, right? Where you get what you pay for, you, right. you, you know, but also it's this weird sort of marketplace where you can't just buy the thing you want. Like if you want a Stanford BA, you, you can't just get it. <laughs> you right, you right, have right, to right. apply first, which means you have to buy a lot of other stuff in order to get your kid into that school. Um, and I think that that has led to this sort of mania, uh, especially among parents that has uh, both like driven a lot of parents and kids crazy, um, but also has kind of undermined the sense that uh, that that higher education is this public good right. that we all benefit when our citizenry is more educated. I mean, I, and I think the mania is no more uh, is no more made manifest than in the recent scandal with a lot of the wealthy Southern California parents who paid the that consultant to get their kids uh, scholarship, like uh, to get their kids special dispensations to get into schools because of like fake uh fake crew uh credentials and fake uh fake soccer slots and things like that totally yes yes and this is another way that california is ahead of the trend on higher education <laughs> uh, perhaps in not such an impressive way uh yeah i mean I, that that scandal was obviously uh crazy and like enraging and kind of uh hilarious at certain moments um but but i feel like it was also in some ways, just this most off the wall effusion of this feeling that mm -hmm. I think a lot of parents mm -hmm. have. So I spent in the book, I talk about a bunch of reporting that I did uh, at an SAT tutoring center in uh, the suburbs of Washington, D.C. And I wrote about this, the guy who runs the uh, company and is a tutor himself, a guy named Ned, uh, who's a great guy and a great tutor, charges $400 an hour. So his parents are mostly, you know, really wealthy. Washington that's like types. a lawyer. That's like, that's the, I know. If I'm on trial, I want a $400 an hour guy. <laughs> but he's worth it because <laughs> he was able to, uh, I mean, I just watched again and again as these rich kids, you know, SAT and ACT scores went way up and they got into the schools that they wanted to get into, which they would not have gotten into yeah. without him. Yeah. And uh, so like that's unfair, right? <laughs> right. That's like, I don't blame Ned. Ned is, is you know, he's part of a, a, a bro broader system that, that has some real problems. But like, He's offering a totally legal service um, that some right. people can pay for and some people can't. The problem is deciding who gets to go to which college is based on that doesn't make any sense, right? Because right. obviously it just correlates with money. It doesn't correlate with much else. Uh, and so, but when I when I read through the wiretap uh, transcripts from that, um, what they called it, the, the Varsity Blues, Operation Varsity Blues, <laughs> uh, they, Jeez. you know, the, the thing that really struck me is that those parents, these like, you know, hedge fund managers and actresses and, and uh, wealth, super wealthy types, the way they talked about the, the process was exactly the, the way that like every, every upper middle class parent talks about it, right? They were like, oh man, I can't, just can't believe what we have to do in order to get our kid into, pro into college. It's gotten just right. crazier and crazier. Right. Right. And like it, in their case, it really was crazy. Like they're having this conversation about like let's yes photoshop our kids faces onto you know uh, right water polo players um, but it, it to them it just felt like one more step that they were taking in a system that they already knew was unfair mm. and it was unfair on their on their behalf but they wanted to get one more advantage because they felt so competitive about it yeah i mean yeah yeah and i and I, I think you make a great point too again which is that this we've kind of flipped our thinking about about higher education and 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 i think you know we've said this already but that that scandal is so indicative of it we flipped our thinking where it is uh it is a 
it is a means to an end and it is it is a consumer good instead of a public good at this point and uh, and it's and it's hard because and, and, and it undermines the idea that we so many of us walk around with that we live in a meritocracy right mm-hmm. because if if the if if the ruling class of the oligarchy continues to move up uh, and and have all those opportunities, then we really are undermining the the, the notion of, of meritocracy, and that is a it's foundational to our uh, to, to the American spirit. I think. I, I agree. I mean, I think I do think it's that big. There's one other thing that 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 it causes on this is on a more personal level, less on a societal level. But like one of the things that I did was spent time with uh, low income students who mm-hmm. were at uh, highly selective institutions. I followed this one uh, young woman named Kiki who had grown up in in you know real poverty and chaos. She was an unbelievably good student, and she got into Princeton. And so I followed her through the end of high school and the beginning of Princeton. And um, academically, she did she did great. She uh, she figured out Princeton pretty quickly. Uh, but what she experienced on a sort of like social cultural level was yeah. what I've heard from a lot of low income students who go to these colleges because they're now so full of rich kids um, that if you're not one of the rich kids, it just feels weird. You're like you've you've gone from a you know uh, either a low income high school or just sort of a regular middle class high school, and you're suddenly plunged into this very different world and. And that those two things shouldn't go along, you know, like you want to get a good education. You shouldn't have to go to a place that, you know, feels like a, an exclusive nightclub. Um, it should just be filled with people who want to learn. But I feel like the way admissions work at those institutions now, um, it, it does feel like it's this this center of concentrated wealth. And for kids like Kiki, it's very uh, uh, disorienting. OK, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. So so the, the question becomes, how do we fix it? Because you've established that college is essential for social mobility. We've established that the system is rigged in favor, and, and it's always going to be slightly rigged in favor of people with money. That's just the reality of these institutions. But for for these large private institutions, places like Princeton, uh, I would almost put a pin in the Ivy League schools and sort of say they have their own responsibilities to to their endowment. And I understand why they would try to get the smartest, wealthiest kids into their classes. But um, you can't ask these institutions to start doing things differently or, or can you uh, because they have a bottom line that they're worried about and they, they clearly are going to charge what the market will bear and the market mm-hmm. continues to bear higher and higher prices so they're going to continue to do that why wouldn't they uh, why why you know why because because then next year they can hire more professors they can build a newer yes. lab they can get better they can invest in more research and so of course they're going to want to do that so how do we so, how do we begin to unpack that so I'd say there's three different things for three different types of uh, the three different things that we could and should change for three different types of institutions. So one is those institutions, yes, that are the very most selective and also happen to be the very most uh, wealthy and well-endowed institutions, uh, your Harvards, your Stanfords, your your Princetons, right? And so at those institutions, one of the things I was surprised to find is that um, tuition the tuition that they get from their their students, their undergraduates, is just a tiny portion of the money that they rely on each year, right? So they're not really tuition dependent at all. They can admit whoever they want, um, and they'll do fine. In fact, I believe Princeton is completely non-tuition dependent, that that their endowment covers all of their operating costs, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I I believe it. I believe it. Anyway, so they they can admit it whoever they want, or they can admit a class of just low income students, and and the model that they base their you know that they base their uh, finances on is that somewhere down the road these students will make a ton of money and will be grateful and will give a bunch back to Princeton or Harvard right. or Stanford, and it works, right? 
Um, they yes, it does. They get huge gifts uh, yeah. way down the road, right? But it would work as well if they gave money to uh, low-income students, right? If they were admitting half their class from from you know middle class and below, they would it would all still work. They wouldn't get the same tuition, but they would have uh, incredible students who would graduate and go on to do great things, uh, and who would give back even more so. I would say to the college. So those institutions really can change. I think there's something deep in their DNA that they feel like um, eliteness or selectivity has to do with letting in a lot of you know rich kids from these these uh, allegedly elite schools. Um, right. And that to change that, it is just about social pressure. You know, and the people who can apply that apply that social pressure are, you know, all of us to a certain degree, but especially their alumni, their students, their faculty and right. their and their students' parents. But but those... but but their alumni are a lot of wealthy people who are generationally <laughs> wealthy who want their kids to they they're de incentivized to, to to make the change. And so is yeah. so is the endowment. Because again, like, you know, Dr. So and so is paying a regular making a regular contribution to the Princeton endowment because he went there for undergrad and so that his kid can go there. And yes. and so it perpetuates the system. And now you've got it a does. class that's 50 percent legacies, you know, or that's yeah. never happened, but a large yeah. percentage but of it, legacies. There's a bunch of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so this may be wishful thinking on my part. However, I let's feel dream like big, the, the Paul. Reason, let's yeah, big, exactly. dream big. I mean, I, you know, certainly there are lots of people who have attended these uh, uh, selective institutions who I've met in my life who like actually want them to be better and want them to be more fair and want mm -hmm. them to be more equitable and diverse. And and I think they mostly don't understand that they have the power to do that by uh, how they talk to their school and how mm -hmm. they um, and how they give their money, you know. Yeah. So that's OK. But but yeah, but those private uh, institutions like uh, the public can't do a whole lot. Right. There aren't a whole lot of laws that we can change that would affect them. There are some that we could tweak if we wanted to. But mostly those are private institutions and they can do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. They should do things differently, but it's hard to make them. Um, there's a separate set of institutions that are much more tuition dependent, still, you know, expensive, uh, selective, but not quite so selective institutions. And I wrote about a bunch of them and they are they are really like under the gun. These are institutions that are having a hard time making ends meet uh, because of changes in demographics, changes in and how college is financed. 25% uh, mm -hmm. of private uh, nonprofit institutions, higher education institutions are operating in the red right now, literally losing money every year, right? Including some very schools. So the change I think that has to happen there has to do with the way that we measure who should get into college. And that has something to do with U.S. News and World Report rankings, which mm -hmm. put a whole lot of emphasis on, on the things that are very expensive and also put a whole lot of emphasis on test scores, on SAT and ACT scores. And those scores correlate with family income really right. strongly. So any school that spends a lot of time thinking about SAT and ACT scores, it's going to be much more likely that they're going to admit a lot of rich kids. And so a lot of colleges uh, are, are going test optional, are starting to choose to say, if you want to... Um, uh, apply here and not show us your scores. That's great. We'll we'll consider you uh, just based on everything else. And that, you know, it's not a silver bullet. It's not going to fix everything. But um, I write about a couple of institutions in the book that have made that shift, and I think it makes it easier for them to admit a more equitable class. But the third thing to let me, uh, and I think you bring up. Sorry, we'll get to the third thing. But yeah, I think you bring up a good point that I think a lot of us misunderstand, and that is. This idea of general intelligence uh, that is, is supposedly measured by the SAT and the ACT, uh, it just, it really doesn't in the way that we've, and it, it was actually adjudicated in California in like 19, uh, I want to say that in 1960-something, um, where um, where the, where the, you, the idea of intelligence can't be applied to certain minority groups because of, 
uh, because of certain social and um, uh, economic implications in the questioning on the tests. So mm-hmm. uh, I forget the name of the case, but it was a big case in California, and the results still stand that you cannot give certain minority groups intelligence tests and, and have it matter for their scholastic advancement because they showed in in a court that the SAT was culturally biased. So we we you're exactly like that. We think of it as a general intelligence test, but in fact, it is a it's essentially a money test. And you can't, I mean, you know, spending time with this tutor uh, and his students in D.C., I mean, it just any any illusions that you have that I might have had about the SAT before being there, I, I had lost by the end of it. I mean, these are, you know, these are like great kids. They're very hardworking kids. Mm-hmm. They deserved a good a good education. But their, their scores were jumping to such a degree that it was just changing, you know, how likely they were to get into all kinds mm-hmm. of institutions. And it was based on, you know, a bunch of a bunch of tutoring sessions, which is not really what measures what college you should be going going to. So, yeah. um, yeah, I think there's something broken in that system. The third thing that I'll say is just like that, that I think the place, the levers where we really can change things is in public higher education. And, and, and that, you know, it's what we were talking about with the university of California. We used to, as a nation, uh, be really clear that this was something that was a public good and that we wanted to spend a lot of money making it really good. We didn't want the, the, responsibility, the the financial responsibility to be on the shoulders of students. We wanted them to be able to get a good four-year degree and get out and not have a ton of debt from a public institution. That makes sense, right? (laughs) And it makes more sense now than it did 20 years ago because, uh, you know, we are in every year more and more of a knowledge economy and less and less of a physical labor economy. And so, you know, there's just clear signs from the marketplace that uh, kids need more education than just a high school diploma. But we, for some reason, have decided like, okay, we'll pay through high school, but then you're on your own. Right. And that's a crazy system. And, and, it's, and, it's, and it's undermining our, our international competitiveness. Real fast, I want to go back and pick something up. Uh, Larry P. versus Riles, it was in the 1970s, and it was about IQ tests. Um, and it had to do with the cultural bias of IQ tests, uh, which initially the SAT was considered. And now it is no longer considered an IQ test, just FYI. Very interesting. Okay. Um, so anyway, I, I just wanted to pick that up real fast. Um, for, for anybody listening that thinks I just made up a case, Larry P. versus Riles, 1970s. Um, and I, I had some of the details wrong. So there you go. Anyway, the, um, so yes. So if we establish that our economy and, our, and our, the Western world has moved to a place where we, need, um, where we need a higher education, and these public institutions in particular, uh, I, actually, I mean, I do want to get back into why these mid-tier institutions are struggling so much when, when the market is saying that we really do need higher education. But... Um, how do we start to fix that? Like student debt is climbing. The Mm -hmm. cost of tuition is climbing. The quality of the education is not necessarily corresponding with that. It's the same issue we have with our healthcare system. How, how, like, how do these, how are these institutions supposed to survive? I mean, forget those top tier guys who can do whatever the heck they want. How are these public institutions supposed to survive? Is it have to do with public spending? Are we just misallocating our funds? Well, again, I, I do think there's these two, you know, there's these two questions, right? Like it, it feels when you're applying to college, like all just one system. But when you're trying to figure out like what levers to pull to fix it, there's a real difference between private institutions and public institutions. Right. And, and like private institutions, I think there are things that they can do uh, to save money and to to admit a more uh, uh, a more equitable class. But like they, you know, the, yeah, they're going broke. And so um, that to me is its own problem. 
in terms of public education, in terms of, you know, the University of California system, California community colleges, you know, it's not just a question of money, but a lot of it's a question of money, yeah. right? Like we have cut uh, uh, per student spending as a nation on higher education, uh, by, on public higher education by 16% just since 2001 at a moment where, uh, you know, clearly the, the demand and the need for a more educated population has gone up. And at a moment when other nations are doing exactly the opposite, all of our competitors are like, you know, reading the writing on the wall and saying, okay, our kids need more education. Mm -hmm. Let's give it to them. Right. Right. A kind of a basic, uh, like normal response. Right. But our response has been, okay, our kids need more education. Let's give them less. And, Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that like, uh, you know, it's not a very sophisticated solution to spend more money on public higher education. Um, but it's, it's absolutely what we need to do. We can be smart about it. We can be uh, strategic about it, uh, but we can't be cheap about it. Right. So how do we move? How do we move the public's feeling about that? I think I feel like there is a mounting distrust of the intellectual class in general, and and I, I mean I've noticed a a a real move towards anti-intellectualism uh, in 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 people, and and I and to, I, I think to the detriment of how we pursue our higher education now. Yeah, I mean I think I think some of this somewhat ironic, like yeah, so, some of this goes to just big social. It changes, you know, like, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and some of it is partisan. Like, I mean, I feel like this is a pretty bipartisan question, but there mm-hmm. is when you look at the at the public uh, opinion data about college, what has shifted is just in the last like four or five years, uh, Republicans and people who say they you know identify with the Republican Party, their opinions about higher education have plummeted. They went from like, you know, 60 percent saying it's a good thing to like 30 percent saying it's a good thing in a few years. That just never happens. Right. Yeah. Why? Um, and and meanwhile, Democrats are like staying the same. They think public education, uh, they think higher education is a pretty good thing. And I, so, you know, a lot is changing in the country. It's hard to identify exactly where some of these ideas are coming from. But I think it's partly there is this like when you watch certain media, when you consume certain, uh, you know, Twitter feeds, you do hear this idea over and over again that higher education is a waste. It's just all these overeducated baristas, you know, that actually there are tons of opportunities in welding and plumbing, and those people are making mm. more than the philosophy majors. And when you drill down and look at the data, it's just not true. But this idea is, I think, um, very uh, popular and very pervasive in the country right now. So, I mean, I think I mean, the we, way do to need, it, we do need tradesmen. And I think that that's, and, and, and they deserve to be paid to your point. They deserve to be paid whatever the market will bear on that. And we and there's a series we've done stories about how there's such a lack of tradesmen, in, especially in like electrical and plumbing, that yep. there are just as many perks at some large plumbing companies uh, for their employees as there are like at the Googles of the world. But we also still need to value higher education properly and our society needs it. So wh- wh- why, I mean, wh- where, where does the data, why are people getting that so wrong? I mean, uh, to me, I think partly it is that, that in, in, in contrast to the past college in the, in America right now has become this, this sort of like identity issue, right? This like very political partisan issue where, you know, again, if you look at like who who votes for whom, having a college degree, that's now like it used to be how much money you had or what region you lived in or whether mm-hmm. you were male or female. Now it's like college educated people vote one way, people without a college degree vote another way. And mm-hmm. th- and that is stuff that just goes, it like makes us crazy. And I think on both sides, it makes college educated and non-college educated people think of college as this magical force, right? And, and where like either you're, you're for it or you're against it and that's just who you are. And, and I feel like one thing that I think would would 
would shift that. I spent a lot of time with this young guy uh, named Ori who was studying welding at a community college in North Carolina, right? Mm -hmm. And he was, you know, so like welding is often held up as the alternative to college, right? Right. Um, Skilled like, labor, very college. important for all kinds of things. But the thing that was so striking about him is like he was going to college right? like that, that and you have to go to college in order to become a welder. It's complicated. And it's a, like you really need this to your degree to learn all the ins and outs of how to be a good welder. Mm -hmm. And so to my mind, like understanding that certainly there's a difference between being a welding student at Catawba Valley Community College like Ori and being a philosophy major at Princeton like Kiki, the woman I was talking mm -hmm. about before. But it's kind of all one thing. Right. These are both people who want uh, education after high school in order to be able to have a decent life. Right. Mm -hmm. And learning philosophy will get you jobs the same way that learning welding will get you jobs. And so I, I feel like thinking of them as being two as two separate planets is part of what has has warped our thinking. If we think of this as a continuum where we have to provide educa uh, education and opportunity for every kid after they get out of high school, because a high school degree is just no longer enough, uh, that will change our way of thinking from this very sort of like identity focused, are you a college person or an anti-college person into like, okay, our community has to get together, our kids need more education, what kind of system are we gonna build and what kind of system are we gonna fund? Uh, you know, here's the thing, I don't wanna sound defeatist, but if this is a partisan issue, I feel like we're doomed. Yeah. I mean, that, as, as much as I agree with everything you've said and as much as I, 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 that continuum concept is brilliant and is exactly how we need to approach it, um, nobody sees things as everything's, everybody sees things as binary now. And we, that's, that, that kind of thinking and unpacking that is, is going to be way harder than reallocating funds. <laughs> not to get, not to get depressing I mean, and defeatist here, but yeah. Yeah. But I mean, like, so. You know, the crazy thing about this guy, Ori, who he was is a white guy. He lives in a small town in Western North Carolina, sort of the Appalachian foothills. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, in North Carolina had the reason that he was having a hard time getting a welding degree is that North Carolina had cut funding for public higher education by 16 percent mm -hmm. over the last couple, you know, decade or so. And so his college didn't have enough money. They were raising tuition. He all this risk was being put on him instead of on the public. And the thing about it is it's it's all white folks. Uh, the county voted 75 percent for for Trump in uh, Donald Trump in 2016. It's like so the fact that like uh, it's it has become this partisan issue where Republicans have become so skeptical of higher education. I feel like it is hurting those communities. Right. Like that mm -hmm. community should say, listen, or he needs an education, man, like he needs to be able to be a good welder. So let's give some money to our community college in order to uh, mm -hmm. to support him. Right. But I feel like it has gotten into this point where even that very sort of logical connection uh, has broken down. And just this idea of giving money to college is seen as this uh, betrayal of the working man in some way that it's it's not. Or he is a working man. He needs help. He needs help from his college. Well, now I'm depressed because this seems, <laughs> this seems like a quagmire we can't get out. So we're going to have to have you back at some point to help us unpack exactly how we're supposed to fix uh, <laughs> to fix this this great schism. Uh, in in our in our approach, but I've I've taken up enough of your time. Uh, before before I let you go, Paul, what? Uh, how can people follow up with you if they want to? Uh, well, I mean, the first thing I hope they'll do is read my book. I mean, in some, the years in some that matter most, how college makes or breaks us. Click on the link in the show notes if you want to buy it. Go ahead. Thank you very much. Uh, so you know, I mean, they really is why I wrote the book is to try to break through some of these uh, these barriers, these like schisms that you're talking about. And mm -hmm. and I feel you know, I'm a I'm a writer, I'm a journalist, so I believe in the power of the word. But I do feel like telling stories of students, real students who are making their way through these institutions, and what the barriers are, and what what what's working and what's not. 
that that can change people's minds and give them a sense of some solutions. So, mm-hmm. so that that's that's why I wrote the book, and that's what I hope people will get out of it. The only other place that I'd invite people to go is to my website, which is paultuff.com, and uh, I'm going to be touring around, visiting lots of different communities this fall. And if anybody wants to come out and say hi uh, at a bookstore or university or other kind of event, I'd love that. Uh, I'll link to Paul Tuff's website in the show notes as well. One last thing, I ask it to everybody. Uh, if, if what is one thing people can start doing if they want to live their lives a whole lot better today, something they can start doing today. Wow. Uh, good question. Um, uh, drink more water, man. Um, I, I just, I, I just moved to Austin, Texas, not long ago. And, uh, it's a hundred degrees there every day these days. Yep. And that is the thing I have to remind myself every day. It makes your life better in a very specific, precise way. Thank you so much, Paul. I'll let you go. We appreciate your time with us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. So, Gabe, let me just say that, uh, you know, it's, well, it's in the book, but I got thrown into college. I wanted to be a musician, right? I got thrown into college to do something else by my dad, you know, uh, physics, chemistry, textile chemistry, all the rest of that stuff. But the enlightenment that I got in college, even though I got thrown out my mm-hmm. junior year, was, 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 was worth it. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I, but I'm a, I, I, I was just counseling a kid the other day. He called me up, this kid named Gideon, nice guy, musician. And I told him, I said, please don't go to a music conservatory. I said, I'm probably going to get killed for this. Go to, go to Berkeley School of Music or a trade school because it's not so expensive and you're going to get, yeah. you can, you're going to get how to, more how to do it stuff. Yeah. Well, and you know, keep in mind, when you went to school and you, you, you went to NC State, that was in-state tuition, and one of the things that Paul and yes. I talked about is yeah, how yeah. that that kind of affordability just isn't there anymore yes, yes, uh, for, yes, for yes. a lot of families. Yeah. And, and it's you know, it, college is still great for a lot of people, but for for that that experience you had at NC State is just kind of gone. Well, that's it for our show today. Uh, if you want to follow, I, I, can, I can start the music again if you want. No, no, I, okay. I, I, I can get it out. Okay, please rate, comment, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Follow John on social media, Facebook.com/slash John Tesh. And thank you guys so much for listening. Well, it's good. You got it. Let's start again. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs)